So this morning we're going to be turning to Isaiah chapter 32. And uh, I'm just going to pick on eight verses, the first eight verses, but the whole chapter is actually uh, quite a stunner. But uh, I'm going to, I'm, we're going to be turning to that in a moment. Um, but let me just say this. Happy New Year, everyone. Slacker. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's not quite weird and even yard. But, you know, we, we uh, enjoy it. And, it. and it's good to be on this side of the fence. You know, it's not uh, last week we had to come and, and, and we were blessed. Thank you to, to the team who just led in commissioning Josh and Shan. Um, we went and hugged them at the airport this morning. And uh, it's mixed feelings for sure. I want to quickly comment on one or two of the notices. First of all, you don't have a lot of time to sign up for the church camp. Okay, but you do have a lot of time to pay. So uh, you only have to pay by the end of May, even, I mean March, even if, you, uh, even if we're going off in the middle of February. We know it's a tough time of the year to jump in and fund that. So you've got until the end of March to pay, um, and we're heading off camp soon. So if you're going to register, you need to register soon. Just to say from the Explore side that that particular Sunday... Uh, if you can't join us on the camp, please join the classic congregation. But all this kit and most of the people here will be heading out to the camp. So uh, you're also welcome to join us uh, and drive out. It's not too far. It's about seven hours driving or something like that. Uh, in my car, yeah. <laughs> I also had a car like that. Um, <laughs> And then if you do need financial assistance, even in other words, even if we move the deadline for payment and you do need financial assistance, please chat to one of the pastors. We'd love to make sure that you can go. And then just talking about the camp, um, the, a lot of the activities, um, according to the rules that are currently pertaining, do not require masks. So, you, you know, if we're playing sport together, we're doing rigorous activity together, if we're going on hikes together, those things out there will not require masks. If we're eating meals together, they don't take masks. Um, and then a lot of the young people are going to be sharing dormitories together. They're not going to sleep with masks on, etc. Um, and so you might just need to get your head around the fact that we're sort of like living increasingly in a post-pandemic way, especially if you're going on a camp. Okay. Um, and if that causes you concern, I'm not sure how to fix it, but I don't think we're going to swim with masks on. So I just need to say that. So, you know, maybe your head has to start changing gear in terms of your, uh, what, the, what the weekend will look like. And hopefully um, our amazing uh, powers that be will uh, start catching up with the fact that we're wanting to move on now listen if you need to wear a mask wear a mask that's also fine but we equally don't want to get there and then people are panicking because someone's going for a run or they're playing sport or they're having a swim and you know we just got to realize we're actually moving on so uh yeah praise the lord okay isaiah chapter 32 can i get an amen <laughs> okay Isaiah chapter 32, um, and I'm going to deal with it more in a devotional way, so we're not going to do a whole study on the history of Isaiah and everything. But uh, we do think this is almost like a bifocal uh, prophetic word. Um, in a sense, it speaks to uh, the time and probably of King Hezekiah, who was a righteous king. Um, and 
When he reigned in righteousness, there was blessing everywhere. But there is something else that kicks into the story that makes us realize that that there's this bifocal application, that there's another king in mind, especially as you get to the second half, because they do pray until, and this is the first time the word, the, the, this concept and idea is used, that people ought to cry out to God, they to repent and turn to God until the Lord pours out his spirit from on high on the people. Now that's the first time that Pentecostal image is used and this is the passage that it's first used in scripture. Um, and so there's this picture, this awareness that there's going to be a king who reigns. Chapter 1, see a king will reign in righteousness and then plural and rulers or princes or the nobility will rule with justice. So there's, an, there's a noble class that will carry out the righteousness of this king. And then each one. Now, sometimes people think this is each of those under rulers. It's very clear, though, that it's not just the king. It's not just the king. And each one will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, like the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Now, how many of you know the prophets and the Psalms and the Old Testament imagery? That imagery is used to talk about God. That God is a great refuge. That God puts us in the shadow. That God causes streams of living water to flow. And the picture is clear that when the king reigns, the people who follow him and serve him become to one another what God himself is. Wow. Wow. That there is a group of people in the kingdom of this king who become to one another what God himself is. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed. It's like people have been living with closed eyes. <laughs> their eyes can see, but they, their eyes are closed. Then the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful of heart will know. They will understand. The stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble or royal. That's this word coming back again. Nor the scoundrel highly respected. For fools speak folly, their hearts are bent on evil, they practice ungodliness, they spread error concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty, and from the thirsty they withhold water. <laughs> and scoundrels use wicked methods. They make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble make noble plans. And this is this under category again. So this is category. The word can mean the honorable. It can mean the royal. It, it's the nobility of a kingdom. Every kingdom has a nobility class. And this is this group that is being described here. So that when the king reigns in righteousness, the nobility makes sure that justice is the rollout of this. So the noble make noble plans and by noble deeds, by honorable, intentional, kingdom-like deeds, they stand. So I want to talk about 
making noble plans to do noble deeds. Making noble plans to do noble deeds. Drawing especially from verse 8, but understanding the picture. So we're going to go back into it and just talk about the, the four groups of people inside this kingdom. So there's a king, and inside this kingdom there are four groups of people. The first, we met them already, those who bring righteousness and just the righteousness and justice of the king. And they do it on behalf of the king. And when the king establishes a context, they're people who bring righteousness and justice on behalf of the king. There's just one king. You don't have several kings. There's one king. And we sang about that this morning repeatedly. But he's served by a nobility, a cohort of princes and princesses who have the interests of his kingdom and the interests of his ambition and rule and reign at their heart. And they display the attributes of the Lord himself. And so we saw in verse 2, these things that describe God. God being the shelter from the storm. God being the refuge. God being like streams in the wilderness. God being the shadow of a great rock. We could go to the Psalms, we could go to the prophets and see how often those pictures are true. David prays these pictures many times over, although this is not David. And so Isaiah's vision of the reign of the king's righteousness, understand this. And this has been true from the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28, when God chose to make humankind. His reign is through human agency. Isaiah's vision of the reign of the king's righteousness is through his nobility, through his royal priesthood, through his holy nation, a people who belong to God, stealing from 1 Peter chapter 2. The kingdom isn't automatic. It's always intended to come through an intentional people who plan to bring it. We'll meet them again in verse 8. These nobility who make noble plans so that by noble deeds they can stand. And there's a contrast here to passivity, to neglect, and even to deliberate evil. And we'll pick those out. Those who share the attributes of the king are completely intentional and deliberate about bringing about royal and noble and honorable and princely outcomes. Righteousness and justice, care for the vulnerable, provision for the people. These things are not accidents of history. They are when the people of the king choose to represent him well. And they're the result of careful thinking. They're the result of careful planning and praying. They're the result of understanding what a righteous, just king would want and then carefully making plans to make those things happen. But we meet another group in verse 3. The complacent, the guys who don't see or hear anything. Now when the king begins to reign, their eyes get opened. But up until then, their eyes worked, but they didn't see. Why? Because they just closed their eyes to the obvious needs before them. And they heard stuff, but it never processed they just weren't listening. 
even though they hear about the needs of others. Up until that moment, until the moment that they let the king rule and reign, it just passes them by. They just don't see it. They just don't hear it. And whether that's just through neglect or even deliberate choice, the passage doesn't really unpack it. So one of the things that this, cha this passage challenges us to do, even as we start this year, is will we see? Will we hear what the needs are, even what the opportunities are? And then if you start going into verse 9 and following, you see how Isaiah challenges in the rest of the, uh, for the next few verses to shake off the complacency. And he, and he talks to the woman especially, um, but he plays with the rules of the Hebrew language. And so it's not like he's, just, it's, he's playing a gender game. It's like Israel had become so domesticated that he has to say to the woman, listen, shake off your complacency. You're just living sort of like day to day, da, 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 and you've sort of like domesticated your lives. But every single verb he uses is in the masculine form. In other words, it's not leaving it just to the woman. And he's expecting the woman to take up roles and to embrace actions that in that culture would have been perceived as masculine. And so although he speaks to the woman, he gives them masculine commands. And he says, I want you to work at changing your heart. It's time to get, it's time to see. It's time to listen. It's time to shake off your indifference and complacency. It's easy to domesticate our faith. It's easy to try and have things so stable and predictable and whatever. And when they're threats, it's easy to close our eyes and ears. And Isaiah's picture is of a people who will turn to God in repentance. And there's some graphic pictures of ripping clothes and beating breasts and doing whatever it takes. Until we get to verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out from on high and we get this Pentecostal image. Wow, wow, wow. Don't give up. Shake off the complacency. Go after God. Pray, lament, do whatever you need to do until the Spirit comes, is poured out, until people begin to see. And Isaiah pictures this critical moment when the complacent have a change of heart. Then they see. Then they hear. Then they get it. Then they care. Leonard Sweet tells uh, uh, of a medieval fav uh, fable in which a young woman who was a bit of a, uh, uh, a, a rough and ready character ends up getting into heaven. And after a short while, they say, wait a minute, you, you, you missed the point of being here. It's a fable. It's not, not for real. Um, you're going to have to go back to earth and you can only come in when you find the gift that God values most. So she undies, ends up back on the earth, and she searches the ends of the earth for what God might value the most. 
So first she brings back drops of blood from a dying patriot. She brought back coins that a destitute widow offered in church. She finds a, a page in a Bible from one of the greatest preachers in a lifetime. She, she brings back dust from the shoes of a missionary who laid down his life in serving the Lord in remote places. And, and she brought back many things and she gets to the gate and gets turned away. No, that's not the gift that God values most. And so she like literally traveling the earth looking and she comes one day and a small boy is playing by a fountain and a man on a horseback rides up and dismounts to take a drink and the man suddenly looks and he and he's a rough character and he looks at the innocence of this little boy and then in the fountain he looks at his own hardened face and he realizes that he was once that innocent and through the choices he's made, he is now a man with many regrets. And as he looks at his own face in the fountain, tears of repentance well up in his eyes and trickle down his cheeks. And the young woman finds a container and captures one of his tears of repentance. His change of heart, his willingness to see what he needs to become. And she comes to the gate of heaven and is received with joy and celebration. What is the gift you can give God? It's the willingness to change your heart from someone who won't see and won't hear and won't believe to someone who will. But there's a third group, the foolish talkers. Their hearts are weighted towards seeing the worst. And uh, they can hardly have a conversation without being biased. And Isaiah shows the irony of the mi their mindset. They end up living as if there's no God, no good, and nothing that you can trust. Hope is viewed with skepticism and with suspicion. And they make a lot of noise and they spread error and misinformation. Sounds like a lot of the apps on social media. And they do it especially about the Lord. And people end up just being misled. The interesting thing is one of the aspects of their legacy. In all this talk, in all this hot air, is neglect. Lots of talk, very little action, especially of the vulnerable. They do nothing for the hungry. And then in the end, like startling, they withhold water from the thirsty. Like what will that cost you? You know, Jesus talks about giving a cup of water. He's not saying start a feeding scheme, save the world, just Will you give a cup of water? And for these guys, that's too much. So nobody does anything. Why? Because we become such skeptics and we listen to rubbish. We've given up hope. Nobody does anything. Nobody dreams. Nobody plans of concrete ways to change lives and bring kingdom. 
So we stop dreaming. We stop planning when we listen to the fools. Their motto is, what's the point? Who could make a difference in any case? It's like, you're too small. There's not enough. What's the point? And then, sadly, we meet the scoundrels. <laughs> and these guys are not just living with neglect. They are actively and intentionally destructive, evil and deceptive. There is nothing accidental about the harm that they are causing. It's deliberate exploitation of a vulnerability wherever they can find it. And sadly, there are people like that who need to be reached inside the king's kingdom. And they, need, they too need to learn to cry those tears of repentance. They actively subvert justice. They exploit vulnerabilities. They make plans even though they know that those plans will cause other people harm as long as it brings them advantage. Now you might be thinking, these are definitely the guys who belong in Polsburg, and maybe so. But they might be listed on the JSC and they might be saying that they are obligated to give value to their shareholders. And they deliberately make plans to exploit people and enrich others. They could be charging the poor more interest than they charge the rich. They could employ illegal immigrants because they know they get away with paying lousy wages. It's very often to think of the scoundrels as the people who meet in gangs instead of sometimes the man who's in the mirror. In what ways am I dreaming, planning, scheming <laughs> to bring good into people's lives? It's very clear that this is a deliberate strategy. People are actually taking time to think how they can take advantage of others and enrich themselves. The interesting thing, the passage then insists, <laughs> there are people who are taking time to do that which is noble and is in the king's interest and will cause others to find streams in the desert, will find shelter from the storm, will find, and so those pictures come in direct contrast to that neglect and to that abuse. So here's the point. God's kingdom is not driven by wishful thinking. A lot of us wish, but will we pray and plan? The passage takes us into a process of prayer that then leads into breakthrough, which then sees incredible productivity, efficiency, effectiveness, and justice and righteousness by the end of the chapter. And I'll let you go read all that. So God's kingdom doesn't come through wishful thinking. This passage, together with many others, such as Philippians 2 verse 13, remind us that it is in both willing and actor, acting that God wants to bring about his purposes. So Philippians 2, 12b, God, we, we give in the command to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to act. 
But the noble make noble plans, that, that willing, that thinking, that conceptualizing, that internal work, and by noble deeds they stand, to will and to act, to plan and to do. So maybe can I offer the noble some areas briefly as we close. The first is, let's pray, plan to pray. You know, you're going to have to pull out your diary at some point. That's what plans are. They're actually systematic, carefully thought through ways of bringing about good. And if you're thinking that good's going to happen accidentally, sometimes it does. You know, and we often think, okay, well, I'll pray an arrow prayer. But an arrow prayer needs a bow. And the bow that launches an arrow prayer is a life of devotion to God. And you want to just start, you know, throwing out prayers at any random time when you have not taken time to plan to pray and to build that. Let me tell you, the arrows don't go very far when they don't have a bow. And the rest of the chapter goes into how we shake off our complacency and we plan to pray until he comes. And we make time with the Lord and we make time in his word and we pray with others and we pray for others. And we do this through regular routines. But the noble make noble plans. One of the first things Isaiah shows in the passage is it's not just the productivity and the fruitfulness and the righteousness that comes. The first thing is the willingness to pray. So Hillary reminded us of the week of prayer. Maybe that's one way in which the noble can make noble plans. Another thing is obvious that there's this ruling class that have formed uh, a kind of community that reinforces that which is good. And so maybe we need to be making plans to connect with and build healthy community. Just thinking, what are the plans that I have to end my bubble? To end my isolation? We've deliberately tried to open our home, but inadvertently, and Cindy and I were talking about this, we... We've been inviting the same people. <laughs> Subconsciously, it feels safer. At what point are we going to choose to plan to make the circle bigger, bigger, bigger? Are we going to make the circle bigger again? Are we going to open up our lives? What plans do we have to share faith with those who don't follow Jesus? And is, is that going to be cold calling or are they going to be welcome in my home? You know, Jesus showed us that we do mission the same way we do church. Now, for most churches, that would be a disaster. They'd never do mission. <laughs> because the way we do church isn't the way Jesus did it. But when we do church, by sharing love and faith, by building community, by showing up for one another, by using the gifts of faith and healing and hospitality and care and mercy and justice, when you do church like that, when you build your community like that, you're not going to struggle to reach people who don't yet know Jesus. You see, we often think that we've got to have church one way and then we've got to have evangelism another way. Jesus modeled those things as completely integrated so when he offered healing he didn't you know just offer it i mean obviously he wanted to see faith 
but he offered healing to everyone. He delivered a Gentile demoniac and let the demons run into the pigs. He didn't pick and choose. He offered ministry and let people encounter the goodness. You see, a church that's living like Jesus would doesn't need a marketing plan. <laughs> it just needs people to love. And when you love into the group, and when you love out of the group, whether it's centrifugal or centripetal, that love becomes the defining reality built on the gospel of grace that defines a church that becomes able to plan and build healthy community. I don't know how you separate mission and community. And so maybe part of this term is going to be going into Scripture and looking at the life of Jesus again and seeing how the community he formed is actually the mission he was doing and how the mission he does produces the kind of community that does the stuff. And then faithful to the passage before us, plans to care, to share, to protect and to provide. These pictures of shelter and refuge and streams and shadows they what we can be to the vulnerable for their good. What plans are we making to be Jesus for those who need him? And then maybe plans to grow in an area important to your life. I don't know what it might be. We heard of marriage course coming. It might be in your parenting skills. It might be in your professional work. It might be that you want to go study again. Whatever it is, don't let those vague ambitions like, you know, we really should be doing, someone ought to be doing something about this. By noble, but the noble make noble plans. Let ourselves begin to dream and think again. And sure, some of those plans are going to be too big for you and you're going to need to come and find a team and, and in a sense, talk and recruit and, and not just you know, lump your plans on everyone, but invite other people to say, well, this is what I see and this is what I think and let the plans come together. But where's an important area in your life? And maybe just as we were coming into this sermon, we spent time saying, God, this is an area where I need you to be king again, where I need you to be Lord again. Maybe you feel powerless. Won't you take a moment with me? You might even need to take out your phone and put it on voice dictation or on an email to yourself. You're going to send a message to yourself. But I want you just to close your eyes and to listen. You see, the noble make noble plans. And they're not just plans. By noble deeds they stand. And it's through them that the king's righteousness reigns. So pray with me, Holy Spirit, welcome. Just let him come. Come, Holy Spirit.
thank you for your love. Thank you that you work in me. You work in me. I welcome you to work in me right now. Maybe you even want to say this. Holy Spirit, thank you that you work in me. To will and to act according to Father's good purpose. Holy Spirit, what plans do you want to make with me this morning? Might be plans to pray, to connect, to reach out and do mission. Might be plans for justice for the vulnerable. It might be plans in an area just important in your life and you know it matters to God. Is there someone I need to talk to? Just ask him that. Is there, is there someone who can help me? Is there anything I should write down? Holy Spirit, help me to bring the kingdom of Jesus. Amen. Amen.